We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in honor of National Poetry Month, we've been playing original poems every Friday in April that you, our listeners, have sent us. And today we close out the month celebrating the power of poetry with more of your original work. And we'll meet writer and musician Michelle Zahner, who performs as Japanese Breakfast. Zahner has a new memoir about grieving the loss of her Korean mother through food and grappling with her biracial identity. It's titled Crying in H-Mart. She joins us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. H-Mart is a supermarket chain specializing in Korean foods, and it's where writer and musician Michelle Zahner begins her memoir about losing her mother to cancer. You'll likely find me sobbing near the dry goods, she writes, asking myself, am I even Korean anymore, if there's no one left to call and ask which brand of seaweed we used to buy. Zahner, who also performs as Japanese Breakfast, titled her memoir, Crying in H-Mart. Michelle Zahner, welcome to Forum. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You know, it's funny you were talking about H-Mart because here in San Francisco, we just got our first H-Mart like last week. <laughs> I heard many people have informed me that you've got, I'm so surprised that it, it took so long. People must be really overjoyed. Me too. I mean, they are overjoyed. I know in your book, you describe sobbing there and for good reason, but it's also clear the way you write about it, that you really love the place. And I was wondering, just... <laughs> yeah, yeah, what you love about it. Um, yeah, I still do love it. I, I probably go there at least once a week still. Um, I just, you know, I've always really loved grocery stores, but that place has come to be a real refuge for me. And, um, you know, it comes from a really honest place. It, it has steered me away from the sort of more traumatic memories that I had of the caretaking process with my mother and allowed me to kind of remember my childhood and, and the parts of our relationship that were really jubilant um, before she got sick. And yeah, it's just a place full of possibility for me and, and lots of ingredients that remind me of, of happier times. Yeah, you describe the sights and smells and the communities that gather there. One of the things that I've noticed when I'm in a Korean grocery store and I see people of other races shopping there too, there's something really legitimizing about that for me. I don't know why. It's like, yes, everybody loves this. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Um, and of course, one of the things that's so uh, clear about the reasons that it would remind you of your mother uh, is just the fact that you clearly and very viscerally connect and associate her with food. And not even just the meal, but, but the shopping, the preparation, the ordering of a meal. Can you talk about why those rituals were so important for her, or what you learned as you examined that more for writing this book? 
Yeah, I think in a lot of cultures, we sort of um, remember and connect with um, our sort of personal history through food. And, you know, my mom was someone who really loved food and, and taught me to grow up with a real appreciation for it. So we were a family that chased our cra cravings. We were adventurous eaters. And, you know, so much of her relationship as, as an immigrant who was sort of, um, you know, moved from from Korea when she was in her 30s it was it was a way for her to reconnect with her home and, and the way that she grew up eating and so that was something that was uh, very very beloved and, and shared with me growing up yeah I want to ask you about a scene in the book food is also a really important character and there's the scene that you describe in the book of eating bibimbap with your mom at a restaurant when you're just starting out, you're excited to talk to her about your music and, and a show that you just did. And instead of engaging with you, mm. she tells you not to put too much gochujang in your bibimbap or it'll be too salty. And I, you know, initially it sounds like this innocent comment, but then she tells you how later, like right after, how little regard she has for your music. She calls it like this this weird thing that she kind of hopes you'll you'll drop. It leads to like this major fissure in your relationship. And I was wondering how that moment affected you. Yeah, I mean, at the time I was an adolescent and, you know, you are just feeling things so intensely. You feel heartbreak, you know, so intensely. You feel embarrassment so intensely. And at that time, you know, I felt like I had found my sense of purpose and, and my one true passion and it meant everything to me. And here my mother was standing in the way of it, you know, of, of who I felt like I was destined to sort of be. And so at the time I really hated her for it. You know, I resented her for, for um, not sort of letting me explore um, my interests the way that I really wanted to. Yeah. And even though you are hating her for it, there's also this theme that I feel like permeates a lot of your book, which is this sense of, 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 longing for a certain acceptance. I wonder about how it affected you also on the opposite side of that, that you were not conforming to her expectations. Yeah, I mean, I think so much of, especially being mixed race, and you don't have to be mixed race to experience this, but for me, there's a very specific experience of never feeling like you completely belong anywhere. I have some friends who are also mixed race or, or people who have mixed race children who have said, you know, pleasant things along the lines of, you know, I don't consider myself half Korean. I'm whole Korean. I'm whole American. Yeah. And while I think that rings to be like really like a lovely sentiment, I feel like so much of my identity is actually this feeling of, of never quite belonging and being this sort of almost cultural vagabond in a way. Um, and so for me, I think that my way of finding my own sense of belonging and forging my own belonging were in my creative interests and in creating this space that was sort of all my own, um, you know, this, this sort of creative world for myself through my work. And uh, I think that's sort of how the, what the book kind of grapples with and where it leaves off. Yeah. I was struck by moments where you would talk about feeling like a bad kid, but that when you were eating um, and and food was enabling you to show your mom that you're you're a good kid, like she loved it when you would inhale Korean delicacies. So it it doesn't surprise me that you know one of the things that really really grabs you when you're in H Mart is the sense of like um, seeing these delic seeing these Korean foods and not having her to connect with. Um, 
The other thing that I wanted to to talk to you about was also just this sense that that as you talk about your identity of being biracial, that you didn't want people to know that your middle name was Korean. In fact, it is your mother's name. Um, can you talk about why you used to pretend that you didn't have a middle name? I think at that age, you know, I was a teenager and I was just, you know, you're just embarrassed of everything. Anything that makes you a little bit different um, is, is just mortifying. And I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, which is not uh, a town renowned, renowned for its diversity. And I just, I was always just so anxious about people assuming things about me before they met me. And with a name like Michelle Zahner, there wasn't much you could really assume about me, but Chung Mi kind of gave me away as, as what I might look like, you know, certain stereotypes that might, might come along with someone that looked like me. Um, so yeah, there would, there would be things like that, that I would kind of shirk in order to, to just feel like I could be a neutral body that I was sort of in control of, of how people could perceive me in this way. Yeah, I love that idea of a neutral body that you can control and that sense of control, because I think it's such an interesting way of thinking about how people are situated um, in the US. The thing, though, was that when you were in Korea, your being uh, Caucasian, as you write, was also was what made you stand out. Like there was something about that. It was your difference that was celebrated. Like, how did that how did that figure into your whole you know, experience in the US and then you go to Korea every other summer and, and it's the difference that you are celebrated for. It is, it is how you are different from the norm. Well, as a child, it was just delightful. You know, I would, <laughs> it was the first time that I, I ever felt pretty, really. I would, I would be walking around, you know, um, sort of like shopping stalls and, and in grocery stores with my mom and, and people would stop her and say, oh, you have such a beautiful girl. She has such a small face. And mm. um, yeah, I mean, I was like, mom, why can't we just live here? <laughs> it's great. <laughs> the small face thing. Oh, my God. That is so consistent. Um we're talking with Michelle Zahner, author of the new memoir, Crying in H Mart, also known as the musician Japanese Breakfast. And we want to invite you, our listeners, to join our conversation. Have you shopped at H Mart or another specialty or ethnic grocery store? And do Michelle Zahner's associations resonate with you in some way? Or, or maybe there's a meal that conjures memories of someone who has passed. You can tell us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Brian tweets, this is hitting me right in the gut. I grilled steak from the new H Mart in San Francisco last night. <laughs> oh, Brian, thanks for that. Um, one thing I'm struck by, Michelle Zahner, as I listen to you is you when I'm asking you questions about some of these things that you really grapple with in, in a really precise and detailed way in your book, you you say at that age, back then, in the past. And so it really sounds like you've come to a point where you're you're able to understand and kind of put that experience in a place that you can access as needed, but that it's kind of almost dealt with in a way. It definitely helped me make peace with a lot of that. You know, a lot of what sort of propels the book is 
this major feeling of guilt of being a difficult kid and, and a troubled adolescent and sort of what I put my mom through uh, when she was just really trying to look after me and, and love me in her own way. And so I think I felt so much guilt about that. And, and um, now that I've written this and, and see, you know, what I was going through and what she was going through, it kind of puts it all in perspective. And I feel like I was able to kind of forgive myself um, for that in a way. I went back to Eugene to be a caretaker for her. And I felt like I wanted to make up for all of those years. And, you know, I do feel like we got a lot closer in those six months that I lived there. And um, in writing this book, I've, I've just made peace with, with that part of my life that, that you know, I regretted for, for a long time. And, mm-hmm. and that's a really beautiful part of, of writing a book, I think, is that you really just get to spend a lot of time with your memory and, and, and learn from it. What did you realize that you like or don't like about book writing compared to, say, songwriting? Oh, I mean, in, in book writing, it's, it's true what they say. There's just no skipping steps. I mean, it's similar to grief in a way. It's going to just take a life of its own and it'll be done when it's done. And, you know, it takes a very long time. Um, and that is certainly difficult. Whereas I feel like a lot of songwriting leaves uh, a lot up for interpretation. It's a little bit more intuitive and impressionistic. And so it was a real challenge writing this book, but I also, um, I feel so rewarded by that experience. Yeah, you have to write so many details and work through so many memories and in, 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 in these ways that are really drawn out <laughs> um, in the process and a very solitary process as well. Well, we're gonna go into the break listening to a song off your debut album, um, And I believe this is the song that begins your debut album. It's titled In Heaven. We're talking with Michelle Zahner. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. That's Everybody Wants to Love You off Japanese Breakfast's debut album, Psychopomp. And going into the break, we heard In Heaven. And we're talking with Japanese Breakfast. We're talking with Michelle Zahner, author of the new memoir, Crying in H Mart. And uh, Michelle Zahner's new album, Jubilee, it actually drops June 4th. And Michelle's honor that that song, Everybody Wants to Love You, is actually our producer, Caroline Smith's favorite song of yours. Um, oh, that's. <laughs> when I saw the video, I just, I got to tell you, uh, and I saw you wearing, I think it's your mom's humbook in that video. That mother's humbook. Yeah, I I actually bought that exact humbook in Korea in 2017. Um, 
I'd bought it for my daughter, but it's the first time that uh, I had been to Korea in years. And I was really shocked when I saw, like my jaw dropped when I watched the video and saw the hanbok. No way. That is so wild. I know. It's so crazy. But anyway, um, well, it's, it's a beautiful one. And it made me think about these sections in your book where you talk about how your mom was, she was really beautiful. And, and you say also in some ways, a little vain. What was one of the toughest things to write about in your book related to that? I mean, honestly, her, her well, that, that's a good point. I mean, for me, one of the tougher parts was just watching my mom, who is such a proud woman and a somewhat vain woman who, you know, like really glamorized self-care before it was even sort of back in vogue. You know, she had a 15-step skincare regimen and she loved, you know, designer handbags. She loved to sail. Uh, she loved runway walking uh, in this mirror in her bathroom. And I remember that so clearly. And then to to write the scene in which she loses her hair and looks into that same mirror that she used to sort of gaze upon herself so proudly, that scene was really quite difficult to write and, and obviously a difficult experience to, to live through. Well, Samuel writes in, I totally understand how ethnic food is our physical and spiritual nourishment with family. I've worked in home care and hospice and have always and have also been a caregiver for my mother-in-law. It's really wonderful how your book is a legacy about your mom and that special time. And let me go to Barry in San Francisco. Hi, Barry. Join us. Hi. Um, thank you so much for letting me say something and talk to Michelle. And I'm uh, Michelle, I, what you're talking about so resonates powerfully with me. I'm an Irish immigrant and I'm a gay man and I came here 30 years ago to escape the way I was being treated in Ireland at that time. And mm -hmm. I remember to this day, my mom would make this nice little dish. She would make mashed potatoes and she would make it in the shape of a circle and she would fill it with ground beef and gravy, which sounds really simple, and she would call it bird's nest. And it was so soothing and comforting to me. <laughs> Even when I think about it now, it makes me cry because I, I miss my mom. And I want to thank you for just saying how common these experiences are across all immigrants. That was a beautiful thing to say, and thank you for saying that. Well, Barry, thank you, Barry. Wow. Barry, thank you for sharing that. What was your mom's name? Her name was Sylvia, and she was, I mean, she was, she had eight pregnancies. She had two miscarriages each side of me on the kitchen floor. I kid you not. She literally had oh each gosh. miscarriage on the floor, and my mom would give a note to my eldest sister and tell her to go to the local store and make a phone call with the store owner's permission because we didn't have a phone and call for the midwife to help her. And we didn't even know what was going on. Oh my God. And wow. I, I want to just say this last thing that uh, I live across the street from a very old Korean couple and I help them sometimes because English is a second language and they sometimes struggle. And we've begun to, in the last few years, to give one another food as gifts. And it's a way that I learn more about them and their culture. And they learn more about me and my culture. And they're Mr. and Mrs. Kim. 
and they're beautiful people. And I just think that food, it didn't occur to me, but food is a way that we've come to know one another better. <laughs> what an incredible connection, That is Barry. so beautiful, Barry. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for, thank you thank for you. sharing that. It's making me think about how people are, are such bridges. Um, and, you know, when you were talking about how you weren't really interested in your Korean heritage until after your mom passed, or you were just beginning to be when she did, and just sort of realizing um, realizing what they were a bridge for uh, once, once it actually feels out of reach. It sounds like right now you've really tried to keep that bridge strong and, and build it uh, more, Michelle's honor, between between you and your your family in Korea? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just something that you don't really question or, or it's easy to take for granted when it's in, right there in front of you. And it wasn't until I lost my mother that I began to question these parts of me that I had always just thought were so intrinsically connected to who I was. You know, I, I for the first time I felt does this culture even belong to me? Does my mother's family even belong to me anymore? And I think learning to cook these dishes was this sort of private ritual for myself to, to actively try to preserve that part of my culture and also my, my mother's memory. Do you or, or did you believe for a while that you would die young? I do, honestly, I still do. Um, because, you know, my mother died uh you know, very suddenly of a stage four cancer in her mid fifties and her younger sister also died of a GI cancer when she was 49. So I do live uh, with this kind of fear of my genes in a way that I, I may also suffer the same fate, to be honest. Does that, does that drive you in some way? It does. I feel like my, my work ethic maybe in part sort of kicked into overdrive partially because Maybe I, I felt like that's what my mom would have wanted for me, you know, that I, I wanted to continue to be this sort of good daughter uh, with this incredible work ethic to, you know, do what she would have wanted for me. And I think another major reason is that I feel like I have a limited time and a lot to say and a lot to do. And I want to make sure that I create the things and, and chase after the things that I want to leave in the world um, before it's too late, certainly. We'll talk about your upcoming album then, Jubilee. The album cover, it features you surrounded by persimmons. Is there something behind the persimmons? Yeah, there is. I mean, um, persimmons are definitely a very popular fruit in East Asia, and commonly they'll hang them up to dry uh, into sweet dried fruit. And as someone who's written two records largely about grief and a whole book about grief, um, I felt like I was sort of able to begin a new chapter and write this album about joy. And it felt like a proper metaphor, these sort of ripe, bitter, uh, that allow for environment and for time to mature it into something really sweet. And that's really what I wanted to do with this mm. record. Yeah, that that's... That's a great metaphor. Um, actually, this listener writes, you offer these details in your book, mouthwatering descriptions of the foods you eat and cook throughout the memoir, rather than including recipes. Was there any reasoning behind that decision? Hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I read a lot of food memoir uh, in preparation for this book, um, and I 
really before I found that I it out of the story when it included rest and I found myself sort of skipping. Around. I don't think that I have much to add to the culinary world, to be honest. Food is more of a theme uh, and a vehicle to explore relationship in my life. So I never really felt like I had much to add in terms of, of recipes. I often just uh, follow Munch, the Korean YouTuber I talk about in the book. I usually just follow recipes. Yeah. You know, Michelle, I think the uh, your line is going in and out a little bit. So we're going to actually have you switch to uh, another line. And in the meantime, we'll actually play a song from your album, Jubilee. This is called Be Sweet. We've been listening to the first single off Japanese Breakfast's new album, Jubilee, which comes out in June. Be sweet. Japanese Breakfast is Michelle Zahner, and Michelle Zahner is with us talking about her new memoir, Crying in H Mart. Michelle Zahner, do you have back? Do we have you back with us? I think so. Yeah, I think this this line is sounding a little more stable. Thanks so much for doing that. Um, this you said that success has exceeded your success now has exceeded your ambition and dreams and i was really struck by hearing you say that i mean this album is is really great and and you've just your fan base has grown dramatically beginning with psychopomp and then um your second album as well soft sounds and i, I was wondering like what it's like to be in that place where your success has exceeded your ambition. It, it, it's, it seems amazing, but also kind of scary at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just really surreal. I feel like in a way I was a sort of late bloomer to uh, success in the music industry. And, um, you know, I came from this DIY background where I, you know, used to tour in a minivan and, and sleep on couches and play in basements to, you know, a lot of times no one. And so even getting to play shows to like 200 people felt like a miracle to me. And now to be in this place where we're able to be on a tour bus and, and get to play, um, you know, to thousands of people in September, we're, we're planning on playing the Regency ballroom um, for two nights, you know, it's all just completely surreal and, and completely exceeded my expectations. I mean, if you, I don't think I even as a teenager, would have had as lofty of an ambition to think that I might be touring in Korea someday or, or on a tour bus. So, I mean, it's, 
it's it's honestly just really amazing. But I've also felt like uh, it's allowed me to to make sure that I feel like I really deserve to be here and and sort of push myself to 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 be better and better and and rise to the occasion. What was it like to tour in Korea? What kind of response did you get? It was a wonderful response, you know. It was especially special because my mother's last remaining sister, her older sister, Nami, who I talk about uh, quite a bit in the book, was able to come to the concert. And, um, you know, it was sort of like the closest I could ever get to to watching my mother uh, see me perform, you know. And she was sort of like uh, confused and, and unsure about how things were going when I told her, oh, you know, things are actually going pretty well. And she didn't really believe me until I told her we were playing a concert in Seoul where she was going to sort of be able to see it with her own eyes. And she was like, you know, Michelle, I just don't understand, like, who pays you? Like, uh, (laughs) (laughs) do you have, like, an office? And so when I performed there for the first time and she got to see me play to, like, a sold-out crowd in in Seoul, uh, I said, Imo, this is my huesa, which means, like, this is my office. And it was, like, such a triumphant moment for me. And, you know, we were touring on our first record, Psychopomp, that has a picture of my mother uh, in Seoul in her 20s. And to watch all of these kids in Korea, you know, file out of the venue into the streets of Seoul where I was born and my mother was raised with, you know, these giant squares with her face on it. It was really wow. moving and it felt like such a tremendous moment I'll, I'll never forget. You say that it was only after she died that things sort of magically began to happen for you. Does that, I don't know, does that make you sad? <laughs> does it, Or is it something that, I don't know, you, you feel like you grapple with? or? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a bittersweet feeling. Um, you know, I'm not a religious person, but it, it is difficult not to feel like my mother is watching out for me in some way. You know, I struggled to make it as a musician for almost 10 years before anything sort of started to happen for me. And it was only after my mother passed away and I wrote this record and, and these, these albums about her and my grief and the story that, you know, everything, you know, my life has been really charmed and it's, it's very bizarre and it's very sad that she can't see me um, experience success in this way. But I, I also have to sort of suspend that kind of disbelief and, and, you know, somehow believe that, that it's her doing or, or that she knows in some way. Even with all the success you've had, I've been struck that, uh, especially after this year, we've had the rise in anti-Asian attacks that you've, you've said that, that this past year caused you to question the value of what you do. What did you mean by that? I think I've always been like a real purist when it comes to art and that it, you know, could heal all. And then, of course, in a global pandemic, you know, we are the most inessential people in a way when it comes down to it. Or or that's sort of how I felt this year. And there was such a whiplash moment, you know, with the shooting in Atlanta coming on the heels of just a few days of the Minari um, nominations for the Academy Award. And so it's just been a tough time to think, you know, we've made such strides in the arts and yet in reality are, are experiencing something very different. It's heartbreaking. Are you still feeling that way or like, do you, you feel know, like you're, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. My, I mean, I, it, it's on and off, you know, sometimes I, I, I still really believe that art can heal all, and especially during these times, you know, like it's a real release for a lot of people to get to engage with stories and art in this way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's also helped because this this book has come out 10 days ago and I've just gotten 
such incredible messages from people and, and know that it's like touched them really deeply in this way that I also didn't even anticipate. You know, I, I've, I've had a taste of what that's like with my albums, but it, it doesn't even really compare to the sort of directness of, of prose and, and a book. And so many people have shared their stories with me about grief and loss and, and cooking and how that my book has helped them in some ways. And, and you know, it's, it is helpful at reestablishing this belief that, that art is really important. Is there more writing for you? I think so. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I just learned so much about the craft of putting together a book and also about myself that, you know, there's there's such a huge part of me that can't wait to apply those those lessons to another um, large literary project. But I, I think I'm going to take uh, a little bit of time off to, to enjoy uh, to enjoy it for, for a minute. Well, plus you have a new album. Well, Mike writes, your songs are powerful, beautiful, provocative. Great to see your continued success, new book, and appearance on Jimmy Fallon. Michelle Zahner, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Michelle Zahner, her memoir is Crying in H Mart, and you're hearing a little more of Be Sweet from her new album, Jubilee. Thanks to Caroline Smith for producing this segment. We have more Forum after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.